Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, August 18th, and today Tara Palmieri stops by to talk about Liz Cheney, who just got waxed in her House primary this week in Wyoming, but is now pondering a Republican presidential bid in 2024. Would she have any shot, or is this just a fantasy of the MSNBC resistance crowd? And later on, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about Elon Musk visiting House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's donor retreat in Wyoming. Musk denies that he's a partisan, but is this a sign that the world's richest man is really just a Republican? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode, The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri. Uh, we are going to talk about Liz Cheney. Is she going to run for president in 2024? <laughs> Tara, she lost her house primary in Wyoming Tuesday night. So Tara, you've spent some time out in Wyoming. Were you surprised by the margin here, like how badly she lost this race or was this predictable? I mean, I wasn't personally surprised. I've been long <laughs> saying this is not good for her. I, I went out there before <laughs> the January 6th committee was formed, like a week after the impeachment vote when Matt Gates was there and literally struggled to find anyone who could say anything nice about Liz Cheney. And that was before she really put, you know, the, the, the stake in with the flag and said, I am the anti-Trump, you know, adversary instigator, whatever you want to call her. And I was like, guys, this is Trump country. And in their minds, they're representative is a mirror of them. You cannot convince people from Wyoming how to feel about things, especially when they voted for Trump by 70 points. And they were livid. I don't think it helps it was she wasn't in Wyoming a lot. She lives in Virginia, right? Right. But these people didn't obviously didn't have a lot of personal connection with her. I was in Cheyenne for like a day. I feel like I knew everyone, you know, go back out there that second time for Rand Paul. And I stayed in Cheyenne for like two minutes because I realized these are all anti-chain people. It was about a year later. Here's the story about can she be saved by Democrats, right? Because they were all freaking out about that loophole that would allow people to switch parties on the primary. Turns out the numbers aren't there, but I still found it to be fascinating. So I was like, you literally drag the effigy of Dick Cheney through the town square of Jackson Hole like in 2003. And now you're out there campaigning for Liz Cheney. Very weird. But it just, the numbers were never there. They were never going to be there. And her team was so defensive about it. I remember they were so angry when I wrote that story. And I think this is always going to be the struggle for Liz Cheney if she runs for president. Like, you are going to try to convince the Republican primary voter to vote for you over Trump. It's going to be really hard. Yeah. After she lost, Cheney said she was considering possibly maybe running for president in 2024. Um, it's clear that she was more than considering it because she revealed that she had launched a leadership pact, one of those things that allows people to raise money, travel, keep their name in the news. And the group is called The Great Task. Um, I think that would be an allusion to, I guess, saving democracy or killing off Donald Trump politically um, before he can run for president. My friend Tim Miller has, has talked about this a lot. He wrote about it for The Bulwark. It's like if you're trying to form a third party or some kind of never Trump faction within the Republican Party, like that's not going to be successful. Like you have to, as you said, Tara, like find a way to peel off kind of Trumpy conservatives 
and get some people in the middle. And like, who's going to do that? Like Joe Rogan, Dave Portnoy, like whatever, maybe, but like not- Not Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney. No. And look, I think personally she's doing the Lord's work for our democracy on the select committee in the House investigating January 6th. But the fact that people like pretended that this might be competitive was kind of funny to me. Yeah, no, it really, it, it was. And I just never for a second thought that there was a shot but she was afraid to go back. I mean, and and she rightly was. I mean, she was barely in Wyoming when I, at least when I was there, she was holding events with the press. Like, you know, that's bad. Like she was at like the Wyoming press event, AP Associated Press event there. She was holding a democracy forum that was ticketed in Jackson, which is Teton County, the one that he won- she, she won. But obviously, like you said, tons of California transplants, not what you think of. It's like luxury resorts, very wealthy people and not what you think of when you think of like the cowboys, the ranchers of Wyoming. If you want to be like Lisa Murkowski and vote for impeachment, but you're Lisa Murkowski and you have like insane cred on the ground there in Alaska, fine. And you don't ever really speak about it again. You know, like you vote for impeachment, but you never say it again. <laughs> that's, you're <laughs> yeah, fine. That's a good point. They have to spin this into like, she had to die a political death so that she could rise again to avenge Trump. I'm going too far into the biblical imagery, but I went to Catholic <laughs> school, so I have to. Um, but, <laughs> good for you. Yeah. So the point is like, she just raised her profile this whole time. Mm-hmm. I wasn't talking about Liz Cheney. You weren't talking really about Liz Cheney, right? I mean, yeah, there were rumblings she could be speaker, but she was number three in line to Kevin McCarthy. This is way more high profile than than that. Maybe one day, I guess being speaker is more high profile. She could have run for Senate in Wyoming, I think in 2020. She turned that down. Yeah. It's just like, it's a political kamikaze mission in which you're like burnishing your brand. So like the Liz Cheney brand is going to sell books. It's going to get her a book tour. It's going to lead to a think tank. She could run for president. She can pick off votes from Trump. I don't think that she'd even make it on the debate stage. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, she has won again, the cliche, strange new respect from Democrats, from the media yeah, for standing up politically bravely to, to Trump in a number of ways. But she would be like a John Kasich kind of figure in, if she ran in the Republican primary. Like, who is this for? The Bill Kristol and some, you know, never Trumpers who will throw some money at her. But like, that's a suicide mission, not just because she wouldn't win, but because the only way Trump loses a Republican primary, if he runs, is a head to head against someone who runs like an inside straight of a campaign, um, like a Hillary Obama style slugfest where somehow DeSantis climbs out on top. But like if you have more than one challenger, mm-hmm. like that's just going to divide the anti-Trump vote, which is what happened in 2016. Mm-hmm. And he, he wins. I'm not predicting the future. I'm just saying that feels like the most likely scenario. And so like Cheney will have to confront this possibly. Mm-hmm. Do I step aside and let someone else try to like take Trump down? Or do I stand up for my beliefs on, on a debate stage or in these primary states uh, for several months uh, fruitlessly while Trump gathers up plurality of votes and then eventually a majority of votes in the primary? The big unknown is what if she just runs as a third party candidate just to peel off Republican voters from Trump? I, I, I think that hurts Democrats. Really? <laughs> I do. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I, I think she increasingly appeals to the MSNBC viewer, which is a never Trump person or a Democrat who fancies the idea of a fantastical bipartisan country that we no longer live in. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't know. I just think that like, you know, if she ran as a third party and say you're in Virginia or Pennsylvania, 
the voters that would vote for Liz Cheney in that scenario, who think Trump is icky and they would never vote for him, like then you have like a Gary Johnson scenario where like a bunch of people sit on their hands or vote for a third party and then the Democrat doesn't get enough votes in Milwaukee, Philadelphia, whatever. I think that's dangerous. I don't, and I don't think, thir- I mean, and obviously like third party campaigns never go anywhere. Right, and you won't get the same sort of recognition, coverage, et cetera. What if this is laying the groundwork for 2028 in which <laughs> Trump is either in jail or he loses in a primary and he ends up not being the candidate at, or somehow Biden wins re-election or another Democrat wins re-election? Like, is she sowing the seeds for 2028? Maybe. I mean, maybe this is a thing with her. I mean, she said she's not going to leave the party. She's going to stay registered Republican. Maybe by 2028 and six years, enough people have become sane enough in hindsight to think, man, that Trump shit was crazy. I don't want to do that again. (laughs) And here you have someone who is still very conservative and, you know, stood up for democracy at the right time. You know, I think it's a slim chance. Yeah. You know, someone that doesn't really follow politics enough but thinks that they do said to me, is there any way Cheney could be on a Democratic ticket? And I was like, dude, she's anti-abortion, voted against the latest gun control bill. Like the casual political viewer does not understand that she voted for Trump 96% of the time. She voted against the overwhelmingly popular gun bill that just passed, gun control bill that just passed. Like, no, she is not MSNBC. It's peak resistance brain. It's like, uh, it's like having a Bob Mueller prayer candle, you know, <laughs> it's like thinking there's a P tape. It's watching Maddo every night while you drink Chardonnay <laughs> and like hope that the BuzzFeed dossier is real. I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's a fantasy. My takeaway from my conversation with you, even though you're supposed to be interviewing me, is that <laughs> you think that actually the Democrats need to shut up about the Liz Cheney dream because it's going to hurt them ultimately. Well, a slice of Democrats. Like, I don't think there's any sort of like Bernie AOC progressives out there who are supporting or want Liz Cheney. Right. You know what? I might channel Joe Biden here. I feel like someone at a press conference asked him, like, would you step aside for someone else? Or are you doing enough to like fight Republicans? And he turned to the reporter and goes, I'm the best you've got. And like, I kind of get it. He's like not sexy, but he's getting shit done. And it's like, you want Liz Cheney to be president instead of Joe Biden? Like, what? What are you talking about? And so again, yeah, I think it's a bit fantastical and Democrats need to be a little more pragmatic and spend a little less time posting on social media or watching cable news. You are a political genius and this needs to be pointed out. <laughs> I don't know, I'm just hypothesizing. You should write about this though, or I will. <laughs> you write about it. All right, Tara, thank you so much. Thank you for your service. Okay. We yeah, appreciate thank you. Thank you for your service. <laughs> when we come back, Teddy Schleifer and Ben Landy discuss why Elon Musk was at Kevin McCarthy's donor retreat in Wyoming. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Teddy Schleifer, our man in San Francisco. What's up, Teddy? Hey, how are you? So, Teddy, you were one of the first people to report that Elon Musk flew into Wyoming yesterday in the middle of the primary race where Liz Cheney was sort of ritualistically clobbered. And he met with Kevin McCarthy, who is probably soon to be the Republican Speaker of the House. Why was he there? What was he doing? So McCarthy every year hosts this this donor retreat in the Tetons outside Jackson, Wyoming. And McCarthy is a longtime friend of Elon Musk. In fact, McCarthy will often not shut up about it. Uh, You know, a good friend of mine, Elon Musk, he likes to say, you know, 
It's something that appears in tons of McCarthy profiles. The presumptive next Republican speaker has a little bit of a habit, I think you could say, of sort of chasing stars and bragging about them. So we definitely know about Elon's friendship with Kevin McCarthy. That's the Kevin side of it. The Elon side of it is that he is somebody who is now leaning into the partisan political campaign world in a way that is certainly intriguing. I don't know if it's a head fake or not. I, you know, I think honestly him showing up at the donor retreat that McCarthy does as one of their featured speakers yesterday suggests to me that maybe it is more than a head fake. You know, I think for the last couple of months, I've been treating Elon's political agitations as just sort of like a rich guy who has, you know, almost 100 million followers on Twitter and is bored. And the fact that he is spending his time, which is a, a precious resource of his and, and flying into Wyoming for this is, is, is significant. Yeah, this whole episode is sort of head scratching for me, not only because the optics are so bad, really, of, of Elon huddling with the very congressmen who are cheering Liz Cheney's exile as a January 6th heretic, but also because Elon doesn't particularly strike me as a political person. I mean, he has this sort of vague notion that liberals have become the online fun police, and he doesn't like that. And he also has a very sort of narrow sense of what is best for Tesla in a particular moment and who his political allies might be there. But I don't understand whether there is some sort of broader strategy for him. Yeah. One of the mistakes about coverage of donors is sometimes is we make them too interesting. Sometimes we make them too sophisticated. Elon is talking about starting what he called a super moderate super PAC, which we'd see with 20 or $30 million to support centrist candidates. Is that really happening? Or is that just a guy like, you know, sending a tweet at 1230 a.m. On, on a Tuesday morning responding to like some Tesla fan club bot, you know, in, in Madagascar? Like he's not really a political savant who's playing the game in, in, a, in a sophisticated way like a Peter Thiel or a Charles Koch or a Reid Hoffman. I reserve the right to change my opinion on that, right? If he shows up at Wyoming, speaks to Kevin McCarthy's group and hires experienced, vetted GOP hand to help him start the super moderate super PAC, and then I'll change my mind. But for now, I have not seen any tangible evidence. This is more than just a whimsical guy chasing what he thinks is right for the country and what is right for him. Sure, this is the same guy who tweeted that he was going to take Tesla private for $420 a share and, uh, and, and didn't. And who also, just the day before we were recording this, said that he was going to buy Manchester United, the soccer team. And of course, he was joking. Right. So right. to your point, his motivations are simpler than maybe the media would like to make them out to be. Yeah. Ultimately, Elon, I think, is very busy. You know, he does not really have the time to be doing anything more than just sort of simple man online posting his opinions. Though that, that's why I think a hire is always interesting to me. And, and I report on hires that donors make. I take them seriously. When you hire and pay a donor advisor to make political contributions and you know, establish relationships with people in Washington. I'm not talking about like a corporate lobbyist. I mean, Tesla has corporate lobbyists and SpaceX is a corporate lobbyist. I'm talking about a personal political Sherpa. Uh, when you hire one of those people, that is a significant development to me that I think always suggests a donor's seriousness. And to be clear, like most people don't have that. Like, you know, I would say there's probably 50 people who have that, 100 people who have that in, you know, in the entire American political system. And those are the people who at least stylize themselves as sophisticated. When Elon does that, I think I'll take it more seriously. Before you go, I want to ask you about Elon's philosophy as opposed to his political philosophy, because I think the one thing he truly is serious about 
is the long-term future of humanity. He talks about this incessantly, that he wants humanity to become multiplanetary, that that's the way to preserve the species. And so it's interesting to me where he is placing these political bets. There was definitely a turning point in his posture towards the Biden administration where Biden sort of snubbed Tesla, presumably because it's not a union shop. And you really saw a change in Elon's rhetoric toward the White House. But this is the same White House that just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which has billions of dollars in government subsidies for Tesla. It's going to make a huge difference to his business. And yet he's sort of throwing in politically with the opposition party, which, as far as we've seen, has very little interest in EV subsidies or government policies that would benefit green energy. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. I mean, it's been interesting watching other tech moguls celebrate the Biden bill. Jeff Bezos has been tweeting, or Bezos' groups have been tweeting very positively about it. Bill Gates was probably more intimately involved in helping Joe Manchin cross the finish line than we knew at the time. Lots of you know, people who take climate seriously are happy with this bill. Maybe even more so the smaller bill that you know is less expensive on climate, but you know Bezos was critical of Biden on inflation, for instance. So, like this is an, in a lot of ways it is uh, a climate activist's dream. Elon, on the other hand, who runs an electric car company and, and is certainly serious about climate change, at least was when he started this, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And that people forget that, right? They just sort of think of him as as this, you know, annoying provocateur on the internet. Elon cares a lot about inflation, you know, he says, if you take him at face value, and he cares a lot about the perceived wokeism of the left, he's not really talking about climate that much anymore. He's not really talking that much about ways that the federal government could support electric vehicles. You would think there'd be much more vocal celebration of this bill from Elon Musk. You're, you're totally right. And I don't know why that is, if it is, you know, maybe it's just Elon being just a guy, but you know, where he cares about what random people on Twitter, activists on the left are saying more than he cares about climate. And, you know, that it's not really a fully thought out strategy because you're right, Ben, you would expect him to be more vocal about this bill and the ways that it could address the issue that he sees as an existential risk to the United States. On his overall philosophy, Elon calls himself a a long-termist. I'll spare you every detail of kind of the philosophy seminar here, but there's a new book that came out, which is getting a lot of attention in in this long-termist philosophy called What We Owe the Future. It is a book that Elon uh, has said recently captures his thinking better than any other piece of literature that's come out recently. The book's called What We Owe the Future because it's about what America and policymakers around the world should do to preserve the future, not for people 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, but 100,000 years from now. And that very much obviously syncs with climate change. And that's why Elon cares presumably a lot about climate. That's the overall philosophy, but you're definitely right. Hard to square that with the jaunt to Wyoming this week. Well, you know what they say, Teddy. In the long run, we are all dead. But uh, Elon Musk has gotten a head start on seeding that next generation with his 10 or 20 kids. So he has um, a whole lot of exponential generational population growth to think about. Indeed. All right. Thanks, Teddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow.
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 